0: Thanks for choosing this podcast and the BJSM community to listen to Dr. Claire Ardern. Dr. Ardern is one of the leading lights in our community, and she's an academic at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. She's a licensed and practicing sports PT, and she's well known for her academic contributions, both uh, in return to play and in ACL injuries in particular. So, Claire, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Karim. It's always a pleasure to be on the BJSM podcast.
0: Let's jump into a case, Claire, where we consider a patient who has injured her ACL. And let's say that she's not uh, having surgery because you and I know that that's not always indicated. And I know you make a case that return to play starts much earlier than some people think. So if a patient comes to you day one after the injury for advice about management, how do you bring in return to play that early?
1: I think one of the big switches in our thinking that came from the burn meeting back in 2015, when we had this big discussion about return to play was that rather than thinking about return to play as being the thing that happened at the end of rehab, we start, we need to shift our focus and think about return to play as starting from the moment the injury happens or from at least the moment that you first have contact with the injured athlete and I think if we can shift our focus then to planning return to play right from the beginning then we can start to institute a lot of the um, supports for athletes that we're going to talk about a little bit later on in the podcast
0: and Claire let's make that really concrete when I used to see patients I would just talk about the options and I'd loosely say the plan which may have been Nine to 12 months to return, but I absolutely wouldn't get into it. So, what would be a concrete way for a sports clinician to be bringing up those issues on the very first appointment? And don't you think it's stressful and there's not much time? Is, it, is there a chance of giving the patient too much information by bringing it up that early?
1: I think, absolutely, we're all working in different contexts and we'll have varying amounts of time. But the beauty of being a sports physiotherapist is that you really are the person who's working with that athlete consistently. And if we go back to the ACL example, you're working with that athlete consistently over a period of say at least six months so I don't think this is necessarily about feeling like you have to give every single tiny piece of information right in the first consultation but it's about acknowledging that when you're setting these goals and we're making the assumption that these athletes or this injured athlete in particular wants to return to her sport and if that's the case then it's like okay that's your goal and we're going to focus on it and we're going to you know, we're going to set timelines for small goals that we're going to achieve along the way, but particularly for the ACL, our return to play target when we're going back to that first, you know, back on the court, if it's, say, she's a basketball player, that first game back is going to be in nine months' time because we've got really good evidence now that this nine-month time window is really important for re-injury risk or for reducing re-injury risk. So I'm not worried about talking about this stuff right up front, but I think it's, I don't want to give the impression that you have to just bombard the athlete with all this information the first time you see them and then not talk about it again. It's, you know, this is, this is information that's going to permeate every single conversation that you have with the athlete right from the first time you start working with him or her.
0: I've got that. And I can imagine that as a thread that continues through the appointments so you did touch on the very hot issue of whether the player should return to play at all or not if we make it a 17 year old with an ACL injury let's keep it adult and get to pediatric separately why don't we just deal with that difficult question now do you bring up that point to someone saying look do you really want to get back to this sport when you're a risk of re-injury and I'm going to call it 20 percent is so high
1: yes is the short answer. Because I think if we're working in a shared decision making model, that I think at least in the sports field, I'm seeing people embrace that really well now. Part of shared decision making and this idea of athletes making informed return to play decisions is that you share all of this information with athletes and support the athlete to make the best decision for her. So if the best decision for her and if the goal is to return to the basketball court, fine. She needs to know what the risk is, that it's about a 20%, maybe it's up to 25 or even 30% for a young female athlete. There's a, there's a not insignificant risk of another ACL injury or another knee injury. She needs to know that. And I think balancing that with what we as clinicians and coaches and parents and athletes can do to mitigate that risk. So I am a really big believer in being honest and open and sharing all of this information in as unbiased way as we possibly can with athletes to support the athlete ultimately to make the best decision for her.
0: So have there been cases recently where the patient has said to you, Claire, I hear what you're saying, I'm not gonna to try to get back to playing basketball or soccer, one of these high-risk sports, as you point out, with the thirty percent potentially annual re injury rate in those yeah. sports.
1: Yeah, absolutely there are. I've worked with athletes who have changed their minds. They when they first have their ACL injury, they're adamant that they're going to return to playing football. I work in Sweden now and football's the most popular sport or soccer. And they're, they're adamant when that injury first occurs that that's what they want to get back to doing. And then as time goes on, their approach and their goals change. And I've had athletes who have said, actually, for me now, playing football is not the most important thing in my life. The most important thing is going to university, is working, is being able to run, being able to go to the gym, being able to be physically active in a different way. And and my priorities have changed. And that's fine. It's equally fine for me that an athlete says, no, absolutely my goal is to return to playing football. Then the conversation is different. It's about, okay, what do we as a team need to be able to help you achieve and help you do to maintain healthy participation in football or whatever sport it is for as long as you want to play.
0: And before we move off the details of return to play in adult ACL, Claire, What about tips for the clinician from your experience and doing a lot of workshops and conferences as well that you find people are really grateful for hearing when you've done this in other settings?
1: I think the first thing is to liberate yourself that the decision or the outcome is not your fault as a clinician. So athletes will make decisions based on their own expectations and beliefs and and what they want to do. An athlete may not make the decision that I would make if I was in that situation and that's okay and I think that the earlier we can recognize that in this shared decision-making model when we're talking about most injuries and I'm going to leave injuries like concussion to one side because I think we deal with that decision-making process in a, in a different way that's not shared decision-making. But for most injuries, the for me, the athlete is the person who takes responsibility for the decision-making. We as clinicians are there to support, to provide unbiased information, but ultimately it's not our decision. So I think the first is to recognise that, that your role is supporting and guiding and And really helping the athlete to make the best decision for her. I think the second tip is that we've worked in this biopsychosocial model now for a while. It's come from, or at least in my training, it's come a lot from the low back pain and chronic pain area. But I think it's a nice model because we deal with people and injuries, the biological aspect of an injury, I don't think can really be separated from the psychological so when an athlete is returning to play it's not just about the physical knee injury there is other things that need to be considered and for some people the psychological aspect will be really important and for others less so recognizing that you know it's not just about treating an ACL injury it's about treating or a knee injury it's about working with a whole person
0: Claire, let's drill deeper into the practical elements of the psychological side of return to play. You're well trained in this, you've published in this, so the concept is okay, but if I'm a clinician wanting to benefit from your expertise practically, what can I learn?
1: We talked about shared decision-making a little bit before, and I think shared decision-making is crucial here. This idea that we are working as a team, we're working as a team with an athlete at the centre. So, um getting away from the idea that you know you as a clinician clearing the athlete to return to play and reframing that as we as a decision-making team clinicians and athletes and perhaps coach we as a team are supporting an athlete to make a decision that's really powerful because athletes tend to have three main concerns about when they're injured and one of those concerns is about autonomy particularly about losing control of the decision making process for return to sport so if we can embrace this shared decision making approach then we're we're really supporting the autonomy side of of the athlete and dealing with that lack of autonomy concern that many athletes have Another concern that athletes have is about losing losing contact with their team. So it's this idea of relatedness or social connections. And for many athletes, being part of a team and playing sport is really their whole world. It's where their social network comes from. It's, you know, they spend so much time training and, and being in the same environment as these people. And when they're injured that can feel very isolating for some athletes so doing things like designing rehab content that the athlete can do safely within the team training environment can be really powerful getting the athlete involved in other aspects of the sport so whether that's involved in coaching if that's appropriate or perhaps mentoring some younger players talk with the coaching staff to see where that might and with the athlete of course to see what might be possible.
0: And Claire I'm interested in the third thing?
1: Yeah so the third thing is this idea or this Concern athletes have about performing, looking stupid when they go back after when they first make their return to play, this idea of competence. So that might relate to competence or feeling like the body is going to be able to cope with the demands of playing their sport. So they might be worried about getting a new injury or they might be worried about being able to execute their skills as they could before the injury and so clinically or in the rehab environment things that might help there are to introduce things like relaxation training and mental practice so that mental imagery stuff, mindfulness meditation and there are great apps free or low-cost apps that are available that athletes can use themselves outside of rehab. You might choose if you feel like it's appropriate to refer to a sports psych. In my experience, for most athletes, sports psychology is not necessarily required here. It's more about you and the athlete working together to work through these concerns. And we talked at the top of the podcast about why it's so important to start planning Return to play from the moment you first see this in the injured athlete. And this is why, because it gives you time to be able to work on these areas and to kind of help the athlete work through some of these concerns using physical skills and the physical competence and the physical skill side of it. So, you know, challenging the athlete with a physical task so that they feel as though they've achieved something. But it's not pushed them across that line of being, you know, really risky for injury, is really powerful at confirming to the athlete that, yeah, my body is okay and 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 I do feel like I can I can make that return and, and be good when I'm back on the court.
0: Claire, thanks for those great practical tips. And you know I'm the guy who's gonna drill down and say, which app or two do you suggest?
1: I love and use every day actually the Headspace app. It's not completely free but it's low cost and I think in the beginning it's free. They kind of get you in. I use that for mindfulness meditation and there are are loads of other apps and it depends if you're working with someone who speaks English as their native language. If English is not their native language, then you might want to look at some different tools. You can do things like, and I've recorded relaxation scripts so actually written out relaxation a relaxation audio and recorded that where at the moment my one of the main research projects that I'm working on with the team here in Stockholm is an app that's supporting return to play so it's focused on cognitive behavioral therapy so we work we collaborate with some sports psychologists to deliver all of these different kinds of psychological supports i guess so we do a whole lot of goal setting through the app we do relaxation we do um, mental imagery training and we're about to start testing that in a randomized controlled trial
0: we are getting towards the end of the podcast time, clan. Lots of practical tips for clinicians. Thank you so much. Let me hit one hard question. You're in Sweden. Ricard Frobel is the first author on the really seismic, I think is a reasonable word, paper about ACLs not being operated on necessarily the first randomised trial of that. It was a 2010 paper, as you know well. Many of our listeners do, but not everyone does. So what about you know, sharing in 30 to 60 seconds about the impact of that particular paper on clinical practice. And now we can look back almost 10 years and, and see if you think there's some change going on. So what about a sidebar on that for us, please, Claire?
1: It's a real privilege to speak about this paper and to share my thoughts on this paper because it's it, I think, is a real... Um, it's it's a really important moment in our um, approach to managing ACL injuries. And from speaking with my Swedish colleagues a lot, they kind of go, yeah, but this is what we've been doing for a million years. And, and in Norway, the approach is similar and most of Northern Europe, it's similar, where for most athletes with an ACL injury, and let's put aside the very top-level elite players for now and focus on the vast majority of athletes that we'll see, for most of these people... A trial of non surgical treatment. So let's go and do a really structured, challenging rehabilitation program that focuses on particularly quadriceps strength and on neuromuscular control. Do that training and then let's see how you go when you go back to whatever the goal of physical activity participation is that you have. And the really interesting thing that came out of the the study from Lund is that when we use this approach that the Scandinavians have pioneered over many years then up to 40 to 50 percent of athletes high level athletes so you know they were playing high level pivoting challenging sports many of them will not need to have an ACL reconstruction to achieve their return to sport goals to kind of circle back on this theme of return to sport so of course there are some people who need to have an ACL reconstruction and I'm not for one moment saying don't op- don't operate on anyone but what I would really encourage people to think about is to challenge yourself to read the best evidence and to put that into practice so it kind of it comes back to our shared decision making approach again and and we talked a lot about sharing evidence research evidence with with our athletes and supporting our athletes to make the best decision for them and I think when we're working with athletes with ACL injuries sharing the best evidence that we have that comes from this randomised controlled trial, and it's amazing to think it's 10 years old, almost 10 years old, this information is is going to be a really important part of our shared decision-making approach.
0: Thanks, Claire, and we'll put a link for that Frobel New England Journal of Medicine 2010 paper in the show notes, as people like to say. Claire, I'm going to hark back and I promise to our listeners that we are wrapping this up, but you've got such a wealth of knowledge. You did mention the nine months um, word early in the podcast, and it was in the context of a ballpark. But I know if you were to listen to this when it comes out, you'll be going, but it, it's not about time. It's about benchmarks and function. So I want to give you a chance to expand on that point so that you don't feel annoyed about it when you do listen to the podcast later on.
1: Thanks. <laughs> the nine months rule or it's not really a rule but nine months comes from some really important work that was published by the BJSM in 2016 from really productive and leading group of researchers in Norway who have done a ton of work in the area of return to sport and re-injury risk after ACL injuries and I think what what this paper does for us or how it can help us as clinicians is to help us give some concrete numbers to athletes when we're having these conversations because you know we as people athletes we all want to have concrete numbers and we've had it drilled into us that rehabilitation after any injury but particularly in the ACL injury it's not about as you say it's not about time it's about function but it seems like if we're trying to do as much as we can to help athletes stay healthy after they make their return to play it is really important to consider the timing of return to sport and At the moment, the best evidence that we have is that nine months is the critical time. So if you return, if an athlete returns to play before nine months after an ACL reconstruction, and here we're talking about athletes who have had surgery, the risk is up to 50% higher for sustaining a new knee injury, not only an ACL injury but a new meniscus tear, than it is if you wait for nine months. And I have had the privilege of talking a lot with the Norwegian group led by Dr. Heger Grindum, who have done all of this work. And, and Heger let me know that it seems like 12 months is also a really important time point. So I think particularly with our young athletes, and if we circle back to our 17-year-old athlete with the, with the ACL injury, we might be even more strict with our very young athletes and and sharing with them the real importance of of waiting and, and letting your body heal and your muscle function really recover
0: quick one on pediatric ACL. you alluded to Henry work you were part of a team that uh, really addressed the issue of even 12 13 year olds people with growing apophyses. two minutes on that for us please claire
1: Sure, it was a privilege to contribute to this consensus statement or position statement from the International Olympic Committee. Issue of pediatric ACL injuries is a hot topic at the moment, as the listeners will be aware. There's evidence from multiple countries that the the our youngest athletes are getting more ACL injuries, and we can talk about why that might be, but let's save that for another time. So I think the bottom line is that managing ACL injuries in our youngest athletes, so we're we're talking about skeletally immature athletes, athletes who have got open growth plates. It's really challenging. It's challenging because the rehabilitation is different. It's challenging because as clinicians, we don't often see many of these athletes so you might have never treated a 12 year old with an acl injury before or an eight year old with an acl injury and the surgery the thinking for surgery is different the types of surgery are different so there's lots of considerations that are different we can't just treat these very young athletes the same as we treat athletes who are 16 15 16 17 who have Um, a mature skeleton. We can't treat our youngest athletes the same. So I would really encourage people to download, it's a free download, the IOC Consensus Statement on Managing Paediatric ACL Injuries. There's great information about injury prevention programs for our youngest athletes. And this is where we have so much strong evidence actually that injury prevention programs work. There's information about diagnosing, about assessing skeletal maturity, there's information about rehabilitation and and I think this is the place where if you're looking for what do I do in rehab, we've tried to give some really concrete tips about what kinds of exercises and at what time and then also information on surgical procedures as well. So there's great information there for clinicians but also for sharing with your patients and their families.
0: Claire, brilliant. A Couple quick ones to finish. You go to a lot of international conferences and you build that into your work, which makes it very helpful. I'm gonna give you the softball question about Vancouver, which listeners may or may not know that, uh, that I live in. And you'll be visiting us as part of the World Congress in Sports, Physical Therapy, October 4 and 5, 2019. What can folks look forward to? Why is that something that should be on a sports PT's potential list if they can find a conference time and money?
1: I'm really looking forward to being in Vancouver in October. I'm really looking forward to learning from Professor Ann Kuhls on on managing shoulder injuries in athletes, learning more from Professor Eva Roos about managing knee injuries in athletes and the longer-term problems of knee injuries. And I'm also looking forward to learning from the President of the World Confederation of Physical Therapy, Emma Stokes, on leadership and, and leading our physiotherapy profession.
0: Last one to congratulate you on having been appointed as the editor in chief of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. We're disappointed at the BDSM to lose you on a day-to-day basis, as you know. But I won't uh, share the t- show the tears uh, on on this podcast. Um, congratulations! And I know the start date is July the 1st of 2019. It's an exciting opportunity for you and for the field. And I commend the organisation for hiring you. What are you looking forward to most in that role?
1: Thanks, Karim. It's a real privilege and an honour to be um, stepping into this role as editor in chief of JoSPT. I'm privileged to be listening and learning from those in our community. Um, I think physiotherapy, as it is, in a really important and great position now, where we're making important contributions and, and those contributions are being recognized more and more. And we all are focusing a lot on the benefits of exercise. Um, so it's it's exciting to be sharing those messages with not only the physiotherapy community, but the great, work that the physiotherapy is doing and sharing those messages more broadly. And I'm I'm also really loving and hearing from people. So please if you've got ideas and or you've got thoughts and you want to share them, please get in touch with me through social media at JOSPT is the Twitter handle. Or always love a chat at conferences.
0: That's great, Claire. And it would really be remiss of me if I didn't thank you for your contribution as at various levels of editor and eventually deputy editor of BJSM, and your you know, remarkable contribution. And I think, and I know we're both looking forward to working together to get messages out to our community and ultimately help patients in return to play. We've mentioned quite a few resources. Claire, is there any one or two particular websites that you would guide people to if they're trying to get to the best in the quickest way?
1: I think the two papers that, that cover a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today are both in BJSM. So the first is the 2016 consensus statement from the Bern World Congress in Sports Physical Therapy. If you Google 2016 return to sport consensus statement, you'll find it. That's a free download. And the other that I think will be of great benefit for clinicians is the IOC, the International Olympic Committee Consensus Statement on Management of Paediatric ACL Injuries.
0: Thanks very much, Claire. And thank you to the listener for joining this BJSM podcast. You might be interested to know that there have been over 4 million listens to BJSM podcasts. There are a ton of great free resources in our community on YouTube, various channels, social media like Twitter for BJSM and JSPT, And we look forward to hearing from your contributions through any of those channels. Thanks for listening.